Good afternoon and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. Common Ground can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. right here on WERU. And archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU's website at WERU.org, as well as the WERU app for your smartphone. My name is CJ Walk. I use he, him pronouns, and I am your host for Common Ground Radio. For today's show, we are talking about the cultivation of native plants in our landscape to make our farms and gardens more supportive of the surrounding ecosystems, as well as their importance to wildlife and pollinators, and of course, their beauty and functionality. And on today's show here, I have four guests with me, and I'd like to introduce each of them to start the show, and then we'll come back around and ask them to speak a little bit more about the work that they do. So first guest, we have Kathy Reese, and Kathy is co-founder of the Native Gardens of Blue Hill in Blue Hill, Maine, that has a mission of creating public gardens of Maine native plants to demonstrate their beauty and value and to encourage sustainable gardening. And she is also a partner in the design firm Nature Plus Nurture. So thanks for being here today, Kathy. And we also have Avi Claire. Avi has been creating garden landscapes for the past 30 years and has mentored many young gardeners along the way. She also co-founded Native Gardens of Blue Hill and is a partner in the design firm Nature Plus Nurture. Thanks for being here, Avi. We also have Julie Beckford of Rebel Hill Farm in Liberty, Maine. And Julie has worked with her partner, Pete Beckford, for 30 years producing field-grown certified organic perennials with a strong and enthusiastic focus on native plants. Thank you for being here, Julie. We also have Molly Della Roman and Molly and her partner, Tim Skillins own Five Star Nursery and Orchard in Brooklyn, Maine, which is a small diversified orchard specializing in heirloom varieties and has a growing native plant nursery specializing in Maine native plants. Thanks again for you all being here today on today's show and if I could just come back around and uh, let you speak a little bit about the work that you do one by one. And Kathy, if we could start with you, that would be great. Hi, thanks for having us, CJ. Um, I kind of come at the whole native plant thing from more of an ecological point of view. I studied ecology and planning, environmental planning, and um, really, and I worked in the gardens a lot too at, while doing ecological work and saw the disparity between what's going on in the garden and what's going out on in the wild and felt that really we, a lot of our properties are managed for our own use and if we could just incorporate more natives into our own managed spaces, we could be helping the, the surrounding ecosystem a lot more than uh, typically is done. So that's how I got here. Thank you, Kathy. And Avi, if we could jump over to you for a little intro. Thanks, CJ, and thanks for having this show. Um, 
So I guess my uh, kind of fascination with gardening kind of started when I um, witnessed this magic that happens when you kind of touch nature. And so I'm always interested in and fascinated with that collaboration that we have as, as gardeners. So I, I think of gardening as kind of this collaboration with nature. Again, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and letting, letting nature do its thing and not intervening as much as possible is, is kind of uh, knowing when to step back and when um, to put your hand in and make a mark on the ground is kind of that balancing act that I'm really interested in primarily. Um, but I've, I've been doing this a long time. I see the benefits and watching things growing is kind of an amazing opportunity to see things change when you do the proper kinds of management and how beautiful it can be. Great, thank you for that, Avi. And I think Julie, if we could switch over to you for a bit of an intro. Hi CJ, thanks for having us. I married a farmer, but I wasn't a farmer particularly. And my college training had been around ecology. So um, when we bought land, there wasn't a lot of space for big vegetable production, but there was enough space for perennial production, which doesn't take as much room. That was kind of the cash crop of our homestead. And um, so we were, we were a few years into that before my ecological interests and our perennial business converged and we got access to educational opportunities that helped us see, wow, this is, it matters what you, what you grow and distribute. We, we got caught up kind of, um, caught up to speed with the, the ecology impact of growing perennials and just started really focusing on natives. Thank you, Julie. And Molly, we'll move over to you for a bit of an intro. Yes, hi, thanks for having us. Um, so my experience with native plants is probably on a shorter time scale than the other guests. It probably started about five years ago. I've been an organic vegetable farmer for 12, 13 years um, in Massachusetts and um, started finally realizing the benefit of leaving some space for natives also, which is now becoming more of a popular practice. Um, and then when we started looking for an orchard to purchase um, here in Maine, we knew it'd be even more important to have native plants um, as part of our, our, uh, our surrounding landscape and right in our fields, right in the orchard. Um, so the last five years has really been focusing on um, essentially using native plants to help our business. Um, so that's um, how we got into it. And then uh, as the nursery grew out of that because um, there's such a strong interest now from people to really have these plants and get them into their landscape. So um, we're already producing these plants for ourselves um, and we do it mostly by seed. Um, probably 99% of the plants we do are by seed um, at this point. So it just seemed to be a great offshoot um, for the orchard to also um, provide the service for fellow gardeners. Great, thank you, Molly. And thanks again to everyone uh, being here today. 
And I did just want to take a minute to let listeners, listeners know that for some more background around native plants, the Common Ground radio show that we aired back in March of 2020, which can be found in the WERU archives through the website weru.org. And it's also available on the WERU smartphone app, but you can access that show through the archives and get some more of the kind of definition and history and some of the philosophy behind the use of native plants is really what we covered about a year ago. And today we thought we would kind of focus some more on management practice, practices, just different cultivation methods to really encourage native plants. So I probably won't ask too much about background information and listeners can look at that archive show to learn more. Um, but I did just wanna ask kind of about a definition of a native plant. And um, I have heard different people use different definitions, sometimes being pre-colonial. So if it was here before colonial times, it would be considered native. And I wonder if I could just ask you as a group, kind of, do you have a working definition of, of what is a native plant for us here in Maine? And is that a loaded question? I'll, I'll try that. That's, it is a rather loaded question. I think that everybody has to make their own definition. And for the Native Gardens of Blue Hill, we decided at the very beginning, we would say that what, what we mean by native is native to the state of Maine um, from pre-colonial times. So it is arbitrary. And everyone, I think, can come up with a definition um, that works for them. And I don't think there's any harm in the different definitions. But you know, that's what we we mean when we are talking about native plants uh, as it pertains to the native garden. Uh, our definition for our for our farm is different than what Kathy just uh, described. Um, it's broader, so. We consider native uh, plants that were in Central or Eastern North America prior to European contact. So um, there's ecological reasons for that definition. Um, ecosystems have expanded and contracted across the Eastern United States. Um, in terms of coevolution, insects knowing plants, plants knowing insects, defining native that broadly makes some sense. And then when we sell our plants, we put that, uh, we, we have two categories. One is native to Maine and one is native to Central or Eastern North America. So we communicate that uh, as accurately as possible. Okay, great. That's good, good to hear some different different perspectives. And I was curious in terms of kind of the business side for farmers and growers where you kind of draw that line to, to figure out what plants you're, you're gonna be cultivating. So in terms of utilizing uh, native plants, I'm curious, and maybe I'll start with Kathy and or Avi about the native gardens of Blue Hill and just to ask you about kind of what the management practices are there because I believe in recent years you've developed Kind of the gardens there in that Blue Hill location, and I'm wondering was that more of letting letting what's there take over, or incorporating some different plants and encouraging 
new populations? Um, well, we've always thought of the Native Garden as the slow garden movement. And um, one thing that was important to us at the time was to be demonstrating to homeowners um, certain sustainable gardening practices with and using native plants, of course. And so we don't try to have like one thing we don't do is put a lot have a lot of inputs in, in what I mean is like fertilization, even organic fertilizers, we tend to um, let we try to find ways for the plants to do the work. And also we're interested in creating a demonstration that makes it affordable for a lot of homeowners who don't, you know, it's those inputs cost a lot of money as well. And so rather than, and you know, we don't like the idea of trucking in uh, truckloads of soil. We don't know what comes in with that soil, whether it's invasive weed seeds and, or rootlets, et cetera. So, so our management is kind of a, you know, that slow management. And we do a lot of planting plugs, small plugs. We, we do some seed uh, sowing workshops. So we'll have small plugs from those workshops as well as sowing directly into the ground. Collecting seed is important to us. Oh, and, and also we're just trying to match the plants that we're using to okay. the microhabitats that we have. Like, um, I mean, I'm fond of saying how many great plants live in the ditch uh, along the, the parking area and whatnot, but it's a wetland basically. So that gives us an opportunity to have a greater diversity of plants by planting or allowing certain species to grow in the wetter areas, in the shady forested areas, in the sunny areas. And we also have a lot of different and um, altered soils on, on the native, uh, native garden, the grounds of the native gardens. And we're really just trying to um, improve the soils using plants. And also it gives us the opportunity to use plants that don't necessarily require rich soil. There are a lot of plants that like to live in gravel and uh, leaner conditions. So by matching the plants to different kinds of habitats, it requires much less um, input from our side. Right. And another strategy that we're trying to focus on a lot are, are using green mulches. So um, ways of sowing that layering, even in a perennial garden, layering different um, plants so that you have a ground cover and, a, and an overstory and you don't have any open soils. So um, also seed management, you know, what, we, what works to let go to seed, what might seed too much. So we might dead head the seed heads, you know. So we're trying to show all the ways that you can just tweak things a little bit, push a little here, push a little there and get a wonderful garden out of it. Julia, I wanted to ask you just for your farm in, in Liberty, if you kind of mentioned when getting there and, and noticing the native plants and, and their benefits. And I'm wondering if you could talk about some of your management practices in terms of encouraging more of those native plants on your farm. Yeah, we've only been on our land in Liberty for four years. So we're on a pretty steep learning curve, uh, adapting to the place. 
we're situated kind of with a lot of um, non-commercial blueberry ground and then some wooded edges. In the non-commercial blueberry ground, it's just the most beautiful combination of native plants. It's not entirely native. There's European grasses mixed in, but really mostly it's a stunning native plant community. And uh, so I like to think of that as fairly non-colonized. It's, it's, those plants are there uh, as part of our ecosystem. Um, they're, not, they're not from other places. So we feel very protective of, of the unimproved blueberry land for the whole array of native plants that are there. And then um, on the edges of that, that's, that's where our focus really shifts to um, paying attention to what invasives are in there and causing damage. So there's a, about an acre and a half hedgerow that um, goes between our blueberry uh, open field and the road. Beautiful uh, combination of pretty small trees and lots of native shrubs, elderberry, arrowwood, winterberry, willow alder, other viburnums, swamp dogwood. So there's this just beautiful bird habitat edge and it has has had a pretty nasty infestation of multiflora rose and so last summer i got thinking wow pete and i could spend the rest of our career cranking out native plants but if we don't do anything to push against the invasives on the edges we're we're not overall gaining ecologically. It, it just felt like the balance was off and we, we had to start putting some work into pushing against the invasives that were, were just smothering native shrubs. So it's a pretty good role division for Pete and me. He's the field worker and I'm not. So at age 60, I'm physically capable of walking up to a massive tangle of multiflora rose and just start clipping away at it and getting it uh, kind of shredded and down on the ground. And then I made it through that whole hedgerow this fall. And next spring, I will go back in there and start uh, cutting back the stump sprouts and hoping eventually to just um, weaken those plants so that they're not there. As, as a farmer, there's like what you grow and then there's what's happening on the land that you might think you don't have to pay attention to. It's just there and doing its own thing. But in the presence of invasives in Waldo County, we didn't have the same pressure on our land in Clifton, but where we are on Route 3 in Waldo County, the multiflora rose, oriental bittersweet, and a little bit of Asian honeysuckle really are plants we're leaning against. Okay, great. Thanks, Julie. I think we'll talk a little bit more uh, uh, about invasives as we move, move ahead. I had a couple questions in, in that vein. You are listening to Common Ground Radio. On today's show, we're talking about native plants in our landscape. And my guests on the show are Kathy Reese 
and Avi Clare from the native gardens of Blue Hill in Blue Hill, Maine, Julie Beckford of Rebel Hill Farm in Liberty, Maine, and Molly Della Roman from Five Star Nursery and Orchard in Brooklyn, Maine. And since this is a pre-recorded show, we are not taking calls. Thanks. But Molly, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the work there in your orchard and farm, um, because you had mentioned, I believe what you were speaking to is kind of cultivating these native plants for their benefits to help your farm in your orchard in terms of, I'm assuming pollination and other kind of predatory insects and things. And I'm curious if you could just speak a little bit about kind of about your management practices to encourage natives there. Yeah, so I would say we're doing um, some very hands-on active management in some places and then um, some more passive management in other areas. And to give you an idea of our ecosystem, we have, we have 17 and a half acres total for um, the land. Um, the, the fruit orchard is only three acres. Um, so it's very close to the shore on one side essentially, and then lots of woods um, on the other three sides essentially. Um, and then there is an area of um, kind of like what Julie is describing, a wonderful shrub area that's just this total bird haven filled with all kinds of um, fruiting native shrubs. Um, and then in the orchard itself is where um, we grow some other smaller fruits like strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, um, um, a small amount of elderberry. So we have some like active garden space within the orchard itself also. So so the, I mean, the obvious ones are that we're, we're planting a lot of native plants in for the pollination. Um, we do bring in two honeybee hives every year, um, but we all know that the honeybees are, are having a rough time of it. And some of our cultural practices uh, of moving hives around um, to different farmland is, has been really hard on them. So it's not a fully sustainable source um, in our minds having uh, plants that are in bloom essentially from March to November, from you know willows to witch hazel, um, to have food for pollinators the whole season through, um, something in bloom at all times is going to definitely benefit us in the long run. Um, honeybees always the joke is, you know, they work bankers hours, they work from nine to five. Um, if it's raining or below a temperature they don't like, they don't come out and you only have, you have a brief bloom season. Um, and so we've got to have um, pollinators at that time. And so encouraging native bees um, and other native pollinators is critical for us. I mean, we've even noticed like in the plums that the honeybees don't really prefer them. We always see small native bees in there instead. Um, honeybees prefer uh, apples over pears. And so our pears need to be looked after too by other pollinators and um, and don't forget hummingbirds are pollinators as well. And our peaches are a major pollinator of our peach um, trees are hummingbirds. It's, it's pretty incredible during bloom season in the peach trees. Um, so, and then also, you know, the, the beneficial insects too. So predatory, predatory wasps, the lacewings, the ladybugs, um, those are all out there. Um, around our orchard is a, is a windbreak um, of, you know, there's, very old maples, oaks, conifers. Um, so we 
are, um, we're actually working on an NRCS grant to have a forest management plan for the whole land, but that windbreak is really important for our orchard, but also what is really important for is essentially bird breeding habitat as well. Um, so we, we tend to forget about the trees, but maples and the oaks, and those are some of the biggest sources of caterpillars, which is essentially baby bird food. Um, so we want to have right in the vicinity of the orchard as many birds that are eating all the um, creepy crawlies that also go after the fruit. So to have that right up against the orchard has been really important. One of the highlights of 2020 for me was literally seeing a downy woodpecker come and peck a European apple softline maggot out of an apple. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know you guys did this. This is fantastic. Um, so we really encourage the bird habitat. Like they, you know, whatever it can do to prevent, we, you know, we were certified organic, we do organic sprays, but they're expensive. Um, and also like just the time and energy of the amount of spraying, like we're trying to really reduce that. Um, so um, bird habitat is key. And again, those, the shrub areas with, you know, that eventually go to seed or to fruit, like just keeping birds in the area so that they are breeding and they're feeding baby birds, lots of insects is, I think is a critical part of an organic orchard. We're also like working on, um, so we took over the orchard in uh, 2000, at the end of 2017, it was essentially installed in the 80s. Um, and the, the understory of the orchard is essentially grass, but there are, there are a few native plants that um, pop up. We have like wild strawberry and blue-eyed grass and bluets and things like that. Um, but we're actively planting native plants that are also nitrogen fixers into the orchard, some of like the, the wild yellow indigo and the lupin, um, to again, like trying to make a more closed system in the orchard to help feed the trees. We also have, we have like a, we have a major drainage issue in parts of our orchard. And again, we received an NRCS grant to put in essentially this drainage just to help. And we were mandated to then replant that ditch with grasses, um, but we're, we're definitely looking into the native plants to replant that drainage ditch instead. Um, so helping with erosion control, um, that kind of thing. Um, as far as management practices, we, we're, we don't mow that much in the orchard. Um, we do what we need to do to keep um, spaces around the trees uh, clear so that we don't run into issues with round-headed apple borer that like to like really hide in vegetation and then go after our trunks. We keep those areas clear, but we, we purposely don't mow that much. And we do leave areas in the orchard that like we have evening primrose that pops up and seems like the Japanese beetles really love those. And we'll, we won't mow those on purpose. So they stay out of our plums and our asparagus and the peaches. Um, so there, there is thought going into the mowing and then one area that we're really um, actively managing right now is we had to have a septic uh, tank and system field installed for um, our cider house. And so instead of just planting grass and plus when um, the soil came in with a septic field, they brought in Japanese knotweed. Um, so we completely smothered that, started from scratch um, and are putting in a native meadow, which is in this cider field is almost to the deer fence um, of the orchard. And so we're gonna have this whole new area um, for native plants for, again, for the pollinators and the um, beneficial insects. And we just have them splattered all through the orchard, especially around like the rows of strawberries. We plant a perimeter of that around the asparagus. Um, and then in that shrubby fruity area, we 
um, because it's so important for birds and other insects to like we kind of talked about the understory, the hedgerows, like you need that um, building of different layers around you. So we purposely go in there and do some coppicing of the, um, especially the maples and the oaks, um, so we can keep that um, in a shrubby, big shrubby area. And then we use those wood chips to feed the fruit trees. So that's another area we keep actively managed. So that's some of, that's some of our practices that we're using. I could add a few things about mowing and also I guess about tilling. Um, and unfortunately, uh, most of our native flora is not very well adapted to mowing. Um, and so uh, unfortunately, our practice of mowing regularly is usually encouraging uh, the European grasses and meadow species hay field species, things like that. Um, so just by stop, you know, mowing less, not mowing at all, you're automatically gonna start to get more um, native species. Also, there aren't a lot of native annuals. Most of our native species are perennials. So, um, Bare ground is something that annuals love and they can really um, have their whole life cycle happen in one short season, grow up, take up a lot of space, flower, produce seed, even multiple times during one season. So bare ground is another thing that really encourages um, our non-native annuals. So unfortunately, tilling um, is going to be encouraging those weed species uh, to come in. So um, if you can think about your property and which areas you don't need to mow so much or don't need to till. I mean, you have to have patience because it's not going to happen overnight, but eventually the natives will start to come into those areas that you're not managing so actively. And then when you do think about your management, you should try to think about how to not expose a lot of um, new soil. So I love what Julie said about how she was managing the multiflora rose by just clipping it back. Um, so that's a great way to, um, you're basically gonna exhaust the plant by continually clipping, but you haven't exposed new soil or turned up additional seeds that are going to germinate um, other unwanted invasives. So generally, you know, in the native garden, we're, we're really just trying to protect the uh, soil. Um, unfortunately, we don't have like really great soil there, but um, we're trying to not dig a lot and till a lot. And we're trying to really get the mowing down to as little as possible. And so someday there will be no mowing there, I hope. That's what we're doing. And I just want to add just outside of the native garden, like for instance, at my own little yard where I moved into a house 20 years ago, but just in the last three years, I've stopped mowing about a quarter of an acre of lawn, like really mowing it. You know, I would mow it maybe three or four times a, or maybe five times this summer. Now I don't mow it at all except for once a while or a little past. And just in a few years, so many asters and other things have just popped up. 
and so it can it it's it's really great to see that you know and I let I let them stand in the winter so they're sowing their seeds are being dispersed all winter long or the birds are eating them or something's happening so you know it's it it's it's pretty amazing what can happen in a short amount of time I'd like to echo what Kathy said um, about that open ground just invites uh, non-native plants. And just anecdotally, like our house is situated basically in the middle of the blueberry ground. And I'm just, I'm like the, the backyard police as far as does Pete leave stuff around that is going to smother like a box or a piece of cardboard or a piece of plywood if that's if that's on the ground in the summer the plants are going to die underneath and then you finally pick up your yard and you put that stuff away and those bare spots just get filled with non-native weeds it's amazing so i i'm always paying attention to trying to avoid smothering areas that are intact uh, because it just invites invites weeds. And then as far as the timing of mowing, um, we're just thinking about that all the time. I think it's important for everybody to realize that herbaceous plants, perennials that overwinter host a lot of insect life cycle phases, eggs, planted in stalks, larvae overwintering in hollow stalks. So whenever, whenever you mow, you, you are wiping out, even if you only mow once a year, you're wiping out a lot of insect life cycle. So the less mowing, the better. But if you wanna keep an area non-woody, you do have to mow it occasionally. And so it's, um, it's just a, a balancing act and we're just paying attention to how our fields work. It's like, okay, this seems to need to be cut back about every three years in order for it to stay open. And Julie, is, is that how you're managing the blueberry ground? Are you managing four blueberries, but in a less in, intensive manner? Yeah, yeah. We left our, our blueberry ground was mowed before we bought the land um, in the fall of 15. And we let it go for three years. We, I kind of needed to see for myself, does it really need to be mowed every other year if it's non-commercial? Uh, what, what do those plants do? And they really produced, they didn't produce at all the, the first summer after having been mowed, but then summer number two, number three, and number four, they produced well. And then last summer they didn't produce. So I'm like, okay, they had, they could do it three years in a row and then they pooped out. So figuring out, now we're figuring out, okay, we're gonna put this into every other year, this every three years, just figuring out our timetable as we go. The one thing that I would add to like, um... As I'm sure most people have heard of the leaves, leave the leaves campaign by now, um, and it, it's like what Julia was talking about is there's a lot of insect lifestyles going on, insect life cycles going on in there that they they need to stay put. But native plant gardening is great for people that um, 
don't want to be out there that much because um, you know if you if you don't deadhead, um, the seeds get spread and there's a great um, source of food for birds. The the leaf cover is an amazing amazing mulch source for all the native plants. Like as Kathy was saying, most of them are native perennials and they need that insulation for the root systems because they're coming back the next year. Um, but that that's what they're used to, um, and so not you know you don't have to be so tidy you don't have to get there and rake in the fall and in the spring but just kind of leaving that natural mulch that occurs and we don't do a lot of like they kind of die back in the orchard and we don't actively like pull them out of there like they're used to that system um already so um you really don't have to be that tidy um in your gardening that that definitely helps out the plants as well just anecdotally i want to uh say this fall i with a Troy built push walk behind mower, I did a chunk of the blueberry field and I was coming up to this low juniper and I saw this weird just growth thing on a twig of the juniper and I clipped it with my hand clippers before I ran it over and then I showed it to our friend and she said, oh, that's, that's praying mantis, egg, foam, and so then I Googled it and watched a praying mantis laying its eggs and like putting all this foam stuff around it. And there it is. I mean, if that gets mowed, that's the end of that family. It's not that you're never gonna mow, it's just that you are gonna realize that you're interrupting a lot of life happenings out there when you do mow. So the less, the better. I think your um, style of mowing, you know, can be adapted too. So let's say you have, you know, your yard and if you just want to mow to prevent woodies from coming in, like Julie's saying, you don't have to do it every year, but if you did like a third of it each year, then two thirds of it would be habitat over the winter. So just by changing, um, how you're doing things and how often it can really benefit the native plants. You are listening to Common Ground Radio. On today's show, we're talking about native plants in our landscape. And my guests on the show are Kathy Reese and Avi Clare from the native gardens of Blue Hill in Blue Hill, Maine, Julie Beckford of Rebel Hill Farm in Liberty, Maine, and Molly Della Roman from Five Star Nursery and Orchard in Brooklyn, Maine. And since this is a pre-recorded show, we are not taking calls. Thanks. If someone wants to learn more about native plants, let's talk about some educational resources uh, available to people. I think one, I'll just put one out there from the show we did about a year ago. We had talked about the Wild Seed Project as a, res as a really great resource uh, for learning about native plants and also accessing or acquiring seed. But in terms of being active gardeners and farmers, what are some of the primary resources or, or great resources that people could access to, to learn more? I'll just say crucial resources for us um, are the Native Plant Trust, which used to be the New England Wildflower Society. So being a member and accessing all of their resources um, especially Bill Kalina's book, Propagating North American Wildflowers, has just been crucial for us. And then the ecology of it, really, I go right to Doug Tallamy's two books, Bringing Nature Home and 
what is it, Nature's Best Hope, I think is the name of his second major book. And those really lay out the relationship between native plants and wildlife and how native plants are the foundation of healthy ecosystems. So we're just hugely influenced by his work and Wild Seed Project, we're members and get seeds from them. We just joined the, the main Natural History Observatory, which is a really neat organization that puts out a quarterly online newsletter. And I just like to be connected to as many biologists as possible. So when questions come up, I have people to turn to. So that's another neat local organization out of Gouldsboro. And Kathy, I guess I'll look to you and say, I know that you've been, been working on a, on a program here coming up in the near future. Yeah, so the Native Gardens of Blue Hill is uh, partnering with the Maine Community Colleges, in particular the Maine Quality Center Workforce Training Program, uh, to be able to offer a course, a short course, nine weeks, well actually it's probably about 12 weeks, um, to folks who are interested in um, ecological landscaping and sustainable garden maintenance. And um, the, we're piloting this course this spring and um, it's currently filled up. It's gonna be starting um, the third week in February. Um, we do have a plan to offer it again in the fall. Um, and currently we're targeting the 13th of September, the week of the 13th of September as the start date for the fall uh, offering. Um, we're hoping that after this, the community college is gonna be uh, off offering the course again um, in the future. And hopefully um, people will be able to access that. I think in one, on one level, the COVID thing, having all these online resources has really helped people uh, be able to access some educational opportunities like this. So there's going to be nine um, online sessions and then two days of hands-on work at the Native Gardens of Blue Hill. So in our area, there's really a need for um, gardeners and landscapers. Um, there's really a demand um, and it's a really viable career for people who are interested in working outdoors. And so we just think that just getting people uh, educated and, um, and thinking about the larger ecosystem while they're doing their work um, is really important and that way people can feel like they are part of a solution rather than, than part of a problem in their jobs and it's also good that you know there are a lot of jobs here and it's a very like covid friendly job to be working outdoors these days so um uh, it seemed like just everything conspired to make this happen now and we're very fortunate that the um, community college system has um, provided a lot of resources to help us get this thing started so if people want to find out a little bit more about it, you can go to the nativemaingardens.org website and from there link to um, the community college website as well to find out more. I also just want to add for the people not 
looking to join a workforce in the gardening world that the native gardens also uh, during the growing season from probably May through October, we host uh, what we call our mentoring days every other Friday morning. And we, the Native Garden relies on volunteer, um, volunteers to help build the garden. There's no staff. And um, so those mentoring days are kind of like volunteer days, but we have, if you come, you're gonna be learning how to work with plants, what the natives, functions are in the garden, how to identify them, how to propagate, how to um, manage your garden at home. So it's an op that's also another opportunity. And while you're on the Native Garden website, we do have a few links to other resources. So you can kind of find things there as well. Great, that's some great information for people to kind of follow up uh, and, learn, and learn more after, after listening to today's show. One thing that I did want to be able to touch on, take a few minutes just to touch on, is that invasive species piece, which Julie, you had mentioned, kind of fighting some off in, in a hedgerow. And I know that the state has maintains lists of invasive species, and those could be found through the, the state, the web state website. But I'm curious if we could just talk a little bit about what is it that actually encourages the growth of these invasive species? Are there some things that are like activities that we are humans are actively doing? And we have mentioned some of the suppression techniques of mowing and tilling and things for natives, but I'm curious, what, it, what is it about an invasive species that makes it so aggressive and invasive? Is it things that we're doing as humans? Is it just a matter of fact that it's native to somewhere else in the world and our ecosystem here doesn't know how to handle it or manage it itself. Well, I think our the way we intervene is a big part of it. You know, we're moving things around all the time. We're moving soil from one place to another. We're um, bringing plants in at the, you know, a lot of times uh, unknown to us, a lot of uh, old garden plants have turned out to be quite invasive. You know, Beatrix Ferran planted bittersweet in her on her estates that she, you know, in her designed gardens. So sometimes we don't know it until it's too late, um, and we're just moving things around a lot. So we have to think about um, that intervention that we uh, do on the ground and what and what you know what that actually creates. But sometimes, I mean, once once invasives are are in the general area, you can have a pretty pristine patch of land and the birds eat and move and poop and you're the wildlife that you love and and want to <laughs> encourage are moving seeds around so it's quite confusing to people actually when they when they see white-throated sparrows uh eating the fruits of their burning bush say or or their japanese barberry they they think those plants are really serving the ecosystem because beautiful songbirds are foraging but actually that's a seed dispersal that's very unfortunate and um so on our land the places where the invasives are really pretty nasty aren't that's just birds moving moving seeds around and so I think anyone who owns land, whether they farm or not, uh, needs 
to, or I would encourage them to pay attention to what's, what's coming in and uh, identify if they're invasive or not. And if, if they're one of those top invasives, if they do nothing, then native trees and shrubs are going to come down and their place is going to deteriorate ecologically over time. Yeah, I think um, I've observed that places that have had previous disturbances and human settlements for longer times are typically more susceptible to having an invasive problem. It's not to say that you can't have one where there is completely pristine habitat, but it's, it's less likely that a seed dropped in a place where the resources are fully occupied by the native flora, it's gonna be harder for that seed to germinate and thrive in that kind of situation. So when we have our yards and our gardens where we're constantly manipulating and um, intervening in nature, that makes them far more susceptible to um, invasives because it's just provide, we have un, used resources there. We're, we're waiting so that our squash is gonna use those resources in the vegetable garden, for example, or our apple tree is gonna use those resources when it gets bigger. But in the meantime, seeds can get established there and become a problem. So um, I think in general, the less you do or, it, it's usually better. However, we do have to accept the reality that pretty much the entire state has been logged and you know for many times over and there's been a lot of human intervention everywhere. So pretty much uh, a, a lot of places are susceptible, but where the habitat is very intact, it's gonna be a little bit more resilient. So by encouraging natives strong native communities on your property, you're gonna be creating a more resilient kind of um, community that's gonna be able to resist uh, invasives better. Okay. And then in terms of methods of trying to suppress the invasives, I think Molly had mentioned some trying to kind of mulch out the knotweed. Uh, Julie had mentioned cutting back the multiflora rows. Is it really just a matter of trying to reduce the growth without disturbing more soil along the way? I think that's one of the best ways to do and, and a resource we use to, I believe it's the main department of ag and conservation. I think that's what that acronym stands for is they, they have fact sheets. I believe it's them on the most in, major invasives that we have in Maine. So helping you identify them um, and how to best remove them. And I think that's just a part of, if you're going to encourage natives and grow natives on your land and to manage your property that, I mean, we're such a global civilization and plants move around all the time and all kinds of different ways. And we have disturbed the soil for many centuries now um, with and the invasives have kind of gotten a hold. So if you're going to be growing natives, encouraging natives, removing invasives is one of the management practices you do with that. Um, it's just part of, growing natives is removing the invasive. So knowing what they are and how to best remove them um, should be part of your management techniques. I'd like to just make sure we define 
invasive. Um, you, you could have a native plant that is that you find pesty, like you could be ripping out uh, Virginia creeper that that's getting into a garden area, and you one might be tempted to call that invasive because it is moving in and getting in the way um, of an area that you're trying to tend. But ecologically speaking, invasives are by definition, this is 99% true, from other continents. So they haven't co-evolved here with, with other plants and uh, parasites and fungi and insects. So um, I'm kind of answering a question you had asked earlier, CJ, like why, what is their nature? And um, just because they're not recognized ecologically on this continent, when they come in, they're unregulated. It's, it's just, it's the same as Eurasian milfoil getting into lakes. Um, it's happening on land and in water. And it's just a question of that lack of coevolution, lack of regulation. Uh, diseases haven't gotten to know those plants. Um, and so they, what they do is they get into natural areas and they proliferate and they become super competitors and they displace native plants. That's, that's what an invasive is doing. If something's kind of a, a, a pain in your garden, like some people think of sumac as invasive, for example, or Virginia creeper, like I said, but invasives are plants from away from other continents that get in, uh, proliferate in undisturbed areas and displace natives. That's, that's a working ecological definition that I think is important. I think I'd just like to mention too, that didn't like happen overnight. A lot of our worst invasives have been here for probably a hundred years. And they've gradually just been taking over more and more and more land. And it wasn't, we didn't really notice that it was happening because it was so gradual. But now it's at the point where it's really hard to find a place that doesn't have at least one invasive um, plant growing there. So um, we don't know what a hundred years from now, which of the plants in our gardens are gonna be considered invasive if they came from like another continent, for example. So um, it, it, that's another reason, just one more reason to, to focus on natives and plant natives and, and, and amend your practices to be favoring native plants rather than non-native plants. That's a, that's a really good point. Uh, like purple loosestrife was here for about a hundred years before it kind of jumped from people's gardens and really took off in the wild and displaced cattail and other, other beautiful natives. And so that little shift that happens is, is a mystery. Why can something seem very uh, tame in people's garden settings for a hundred years and then start proliferating in natural areas? That's and so, like Kathy said, the, the way to avoid that future problem is to just work with natives. 
I, I wonder if we should just mention the basic ecological principle that one of the disadvantages of having invasives proliferate is that they, those plants do not host caterpillars. So they don't create that enormous food source that birds are raising their young on. So a, a plant from away, whether it's invasive or not, I mean, ginkgos aren't invasive, but they are ecologically sterile. So there's no bird going to a ginkgo tree to find a caterpillar to feed its chicks. Whether a plant is invasive or not, if, it's, if it hasn't co-evolved here, it's biologically inactive and it's taking up space that really needs to be filled by plants that are more functional. So we've come to the end of the show talking about native plants in our landscape here. And I'd like to thank each of our guests for being here today. Kathy Reese, thank you for joining us here on the show. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you for having us. And Avi Claire, also thank you for being here on today's show. Yes, it was fun. It was a really great time. Thanks for having us. And thanks to Julie Beckford from Rebel Hill Farm in Liberty. Thanks for being here, Julie. You're welcome, CJ. It's a nice time with everyone. Great. And also thanks to Molly Della Roman from Five Star Nursery down in Brooklyn. Thanks again for being here today, Molly. Great. Thank you. We're really grateful to be a part of this um, active community. This has been Common Ground Radio. Thanks for tuning in to our show today. Common Ground Radio can be heard on the second Thursday of every month at 4 p.m. right here on WERU. And archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU.org, as well as the WERU app for your smartphone. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month. And stay tuned for more great programming.